0: Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. So, this is our scripture that we're going to be studying today. It is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You know it, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, let's open our hearts and open our minds to receive it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do li- likewise. Amen. You may be seated. And Lord, we pray this morning for uh,
1: Miles McPherson's wife, Debbie, who is in the hospital with COVID complications. And she needs to breathe. God, and so as you breathe life into Adam and Eve, your creation and your dearly loved, we pray that you would continue to breathe your life into the lungs of Debbie and restore her to full health. And Lord, we even dare to boldly pray to you for an end to this scourge that is COVID. For all the people currently struggling for those who may get it and for family members who've been dealing with the loss of loved ones, Lord, we we just beg you that we have had enough and we say, Enough, Lord, please stop the spread. And our hearts go to Afghanistan this morning, Lord, where scared citizens are wondering now what is next for them, especially their wives and their daughters because their country is rapidly being overtaken by the invading forces. We pray for them, Lord. They're in fear. Protect them, comfort them. And then in our hemisphere, Lord, the the country of Haiti where there's been a 7.2 earthquake. And in 2010 there was a big earthquake and and now some have rebuilt or not even rebuilt and now a big earthquake again, Lord. So far we know of 300 dead and today they sort through the rubble and try to preserve more human life. We pray for them, God. It seems like so little, it seems like we're not able to help from over here, but we lift up our prayers corporately as a body for all of these things, Lord, and would you let them know that you've not abandoned them, that in the midst of suffering and sorrow and fear, you are right there with them, as surely as you are right here with us this morning. And we give you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, that we are opening our Bibles to a parable that addresses suffering, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is good that we read of the Good Samaritan this morning, Lord, we love you and we give you this time as we study your word in Jesus' name, amen. Morning, everybody. So here we are in our series and we've come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is so well known Even non-Christians know what you say when you what you mean when you say that person's a good Samaritan. Growing up in Lutheran church in North Dakota, we had a little Tuesday morning group of old ladies who would get together and make quilts and donate those quilts overseas, and they were called the Good Samaritans. But it turns out that the parable of the Good Samaritan is so well known; everybody knows what it means that we've flattened the meaning, and nobody actually knows what it means. And so that's where we're going to go this morning, this parable that operates on many different levels, and to truly understand what Jesus is communicating with this parable coming alongside real life, we have to go all the way back in the Bible to Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four is the well-known story of Cain and Abel. You know the story? The two brothers go out and they offer sacrifices to God, and Abel's sacrifice is looked upon with approval, and Cain's sacrifice is looked upon with disapproval, and the rage builds up inside of Cain, and he sneaks up on his brother and he overwhelms him and he kills him in the field. And then in Genesis 4, verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? As if he doesn't know. And Cain replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, don't you suppose for a moment that deep down in his heart, Cain is hoping that the answer is no. No, Cain, you're not responsible. Abel was weak, you were strong, you outsmarted him, and you do you. You go, Cain. But of course, that's not what God says. The Lord then begins to lay out and articulate a bedrock principle in Judeo-Christian thought, which is... The protection of innocent human life. It's not what Cain wanted to hear, but it's what he suspected he would hear. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Now we we page forward to the New Testament, and we get into the stories of Jesus clashing with the Pharisees. On one occasion, Matthew chapter 12 says that uh, there was a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, and Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees who've already been grumbling, yeah, your disciples don't wash their hands whether they should, and you're not following what the law says. And Jesus says, "Look, guys, guys, if you had a sheep who fell into a pit, it wouldn't matter what day of the week it was. You're going to pull him out. Don't you think that this human being is worth more than this piece of property?" And see, Jesus is saying that that above all things, you've got to keep an eye on the big picture. And of course, we're going to protect that innocent human life. And now we come into Luke chapter ten, where these Pharisees and teachers of the law come to him, and they're always trying to trick him, always trying to trip him up. And and the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives them three loves. The first love is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And presumably, Jesus is not giving us permission to hate our neighbor if we hate ourselves. Presumably, Jesus is saying, you need to have strong enough self-regard and be filled with enough love that you can overflow and give it to other people. And this man wants to be sure that he's, he's got it exactly right. So the Bible says, in order to justify himself, he says to Jesus, uh, And who is my neighbor? And again, deep down, don't you suppose that this man wanted Jesus to say something like this Well, you know, it's your, your neighbors, it's the people you see every day, it's the people in your, uh, in your family, and the people you work with, and your friends, and the people that you've chosen to like. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. That's the fourth love. So we love God, we love ourselves, and we love our neighbors, those we know, but we also love complete strangers who might be hurting. And he does this to convict them, to stab them in the heart because this guy thought he had it all tied up, he thought he was batting a 1,000, and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, but what about your neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Well, he's the guy that you don't even know, but you might come across. So let me tell you this story. A guy's walking down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets beat up by thieves, and he's left on the side of the road to die, and he's bleeding. And Jesus very intentionally chooses his points of reference in this parable. There's a reason that the first person who comes along, Jesus identifies as a priest. Not a shopkeeper, Not an artisan, not a farmer, not a mechanic, but a priest. And the second person he identifies, who moves to the other side of the road and pretends that he doesn't see it, is a Levite, also a religious worker. Jesus didn't have to tell the parable that way. He could have said, you know, the first person who came along was a a fisherman. And he just didn't have time, so he just moved to the other side of the road. And the second person who came along was a, I don't know, a school teacher. They just moved to the other side of the road. But he doesn't do that. So don't miss the significance of this, that Jesus specifically identifies two religious people. It's their job to be religious, to serve God and love God, a priest and a Levite. They pass by to the other side of the road. The third person to come along is a Samaritan, also deliberately chosen as a point of reference by Jesus. We'll get to why that's important in a minute. But the Samaritan, he takes the time to go to the man, not away from the man, to tend to his wounds, to bring him to an inn, and to leave him with two days of wages, of a workman's wages, which in this day and age would be what, three, $400, and then promising the innkeeper, whatever extra you spend on top of that, let me know, and I'll reimburse you for that as well. And then Jesus says, now, which one of these uh, showed mercy Which one was a neighbor to the man? And the expert says, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. See, I think what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable is that sometimes religious people do the wrong thing and unreligious people do the right thing. But there's another possible interpretation to this parable, isn't there? Because let's think about it for a second from the perspective of the priest and the Levite. Would the priest and the Levite at the end of that day said that they had done anything wrong? Because here they are on their way to work and and they got to get to the temple on time to do what the law says they must do. And so we can imagine what the conversation was when the the priest got home that night and his wife said to him, hey honey, how was your day today? And he goes, well, uh, pretty good. We sacrificed a record number of animals on that altar today. And we burned the incense just on schedule, and I didn't stumble in reciting the prayers at all. We had a banner day in the service of God. She goes, wow, that's impressive, very good. Anything else happen? Well, you know, there was that thing, I was on my way to the temple, there was a dude all beat up and bloody by the side of the road, but honey, I was really careful not to dirty my robes. I got way out of the way so I could make it to the temple on time. See, that might be how the priest and the Levite would tell that story. They would say, we, we actually didn't do anything wrong because we needed to get to temple to do what the Bible said we ought to do. And that might be how they would interpret that story, that that, that command to do the things that they'd been commanded to do was higher than the command that's over here. Jesus says, you're, you're not right about that, but that's the second possible interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that sometimes religious people do the right thing Unreligious people end up doing the writer thing. And see, what Jesus is trying to do with this parable is he's trying to broaden our perspective and open our eyes and say, it's not wrong to be religious. If, religious is, if your religion is a system that connects you to God so you can love him more, that's good. But what about all the other people in your midst? And so last week, Ryan spoke about the, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. And if we discover and believe that God has this thing for us, this love that is filling and renewing and transforming that will just change everything about us, you would give up anything else valuable to have that thing. You would. But now the the parable of the Good Samaritan comes along and it fills in the other side of the equation. That we don't just receive God's love and bathe in God's love and then hoard God's love to ourselves, So it stops right here. It's called being a Dead Sea Christian because everything flows in, but nothing has any place to flow out. But instead, yes, we receive God's love and we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we also let it flow out of us, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And who is my neighbor? It's even the person that I don't know. Now there's another wrinkle to this parable. And that's that Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Don't miss this. Who were Samaritans? Samaritans were Jews, but they weren't looked upon as real Jews by the Jews in the south. So back in the Old Testament when the kingdom splits and there's 12 tribes in the or sorry, 10 tribes in the north, 2 in the south, ruled by different kings. The northern tribes set up their own system of sacrifices and location for the sacrifices on the high place on the top of Mount Gerizim. So that when Jesus is visiting with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she says, well, we've got the true religion. We worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus goes, well, you're a little off on that, but, but we worship God in spirit and in truth. So what happens is, when the northern kingdom is conquered, and they're conquered first, 722 B.C., the Assyrians who come in disperse some of them, but not all of them, and the Jews who remain begin to intermarry with foreign peoples. God said not to, but they did it, and it mixes some religion you know, from other religions in there. But when the southern kingdom falls in 586 B.C., and the Jews are exiled off to Babylon, which on the map would be this way for you, and they're in Babylon for 70 years. They preserve the purity of their worship as they see it. They come back. They reestablish the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And now there's a rivalry between these southern Jews who believe they've got the true form of worship and the northern Jews. Samaritans were discriminated against. They were looked down upon. They were believed to be half-breeds, Sellouts. You sold out the national story. The dream that God had for us as, as the children of Israel, you sold out because you intermarried with foreigners. Samaritans were considered dogs. You would not point to a Samaritan as a good example of anything. And yet Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Why? because I think a third interpretation of this parable is possible, and I think it's this. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate here is sometimes unreligious people, even people who we might hate, do a better job loving the world the way that Jesus loves it than religious people do. Not always, but in some cases, unreligious people, even people who we would point to and we hate them, end up doing a better job loving the world in the way that Jesus loves the world than religious people do. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, what do we do with that? Does that mean that we just chuck religion because it's it's in the way and just go love the world? That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's trying to teach here because in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So it's not an anti-religion parable, but, but what it means is this, that I have to have room in my theology for the suffering of other people. That is, when I look at the world and I see suffering somewhere, I need to be able to connect it to my theology, which is my God thoughts and my God understanding of who he is and who I am and what he wants me to do. I've got to be able to draw a line connection to the suffering that I see all around me. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, I am. As desperately as I want the answer to be no, Mark, you just take care of yourself. As much as I want the answer to be no, we're a common humanity created by God and he doesn't care more about one person than another person. His heart is there in the midst of your suffering and mine, but also that dude's suffering down the road that woman's suffering on the other side of the world. So what do we do? The answer isn't to chuck religion and become unreligious. The answer is, if your religion doesn't have any space or room in it for the suffering of other people, then your religion simply needs to change. <gasps> I didn't say it. John said it. I didn't say it. James said it. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Listen to this. First John chapter 3, verse 16. Easy to find, John 3:16, but this is from his first letter and he says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Interesting there how he connects the concept of pity, not just to a feeling of your, in your heart that goes, oh, for them, but towards action. And so as we're learning to pray or teaching our kids to pray, they're three years old at night, and we are teaching them about praying for other people and and that we fill other people with kindness so that they have kindness to give away. But it's one thing for them to learn to say the right words in their prayers, and it's another thing for my wife and I to say the right words as we talk about suffering that we see in the world, but it's a whole other thing to actually follow through with action. Do I want them to pray that way? Yes, I do, because the Bible commands us to do that. But I also want them to follow through because faith without works is... Dead, thank you, yeah. Yeah. Now, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And then Jesus in Matthew 23, 23. This is before he goes to the cross and he is laying into the Pharisees for one last time saying, you guys are missing the bigger picture of things. Because to completely love God is not just to receive the God and pull it here, it's to receive what he gives and then send it out there. So twenty three, twenty three, he says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites! "'You give a tenth of your spices, "'mint, dill, cumin, "'but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, "'justice, mercy, and faithfulness. "'You should have practiced the latter "'without neglecting the former.'" Is Jesus saying religious observance is wrong? He's not saying that. Is Jesus saying religious ritual is wrong? He's not saying that. But he's saying it could be incomplete. That you're connecting all the dots in your personal worship and relationship with Jesus, but you're missing what's out here, the suffering that you see. And to love God is to love others. Because how can I see someone in need? How can the love of Christ be in me if I see needs in the world and my heart isn't pricked and I ask myself, God, what do you want me to do? No, I can't solve every problem. I'm one person. I can't be everywhere, and I can't attend to every situation. But together, that's the meaning of the church, right? Jesus' hands and feet, as we say at this church, transform people, transforming the world. Jesus says, verse 24, you blind guides, you will strain out a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel. Jesus is just greeting this drum again and again in his earthly ministry. Don't miss the bigger picture. Now, there's a concern. And the concern is that if we as Christians love outcast people, extend care to oppressed people, hurting people, we might be lumping ourselves in with some kind of modern theory or secular ideology. This is what I want to say about that that Jesus was the original lover of outcast people. Jesus set the standard for what it was to go beyond himself and minister to those who are hurting. And Jesus was around before any of these modern mindsets or theories came around, because Jesus has been around since before there was time. So we don't have to worry that in loving the world, strangers in a certain way, we're gonna get lumped in with people and water down the gospel, We just need to boldly love the way that Jesus called us to love and the way that he first paved that path. Unashamedly. We're not joining them. They're joining us. And they're walking this path that that Jesus paved that the Pharisees couldn't see because they were just so blinded by, no, we've got God figured out. No, 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 don't, don't mess with us and speak into our system. We've got it down. And Jesus says, Let's take a a look at the bigger picture here. Again, you'd grab your sheep out of a pit if he falls in on a Sunday so he doesn't starve and die. But this guy with a shriveled hand, you're just gonna say, sorry, we're we're closed today. (laughs) Come back a different day and get healed. Jesus says that is seriously messed up. If we want the world to seek out the church when there is suffering, then we've gotta be where suffering is. We've got to not cross over to the other side of the road. They're suffering in Carlsbad. They're suffering in North County. Don't we want the schools and the city and other nonprofits to be lined up at our door saying, We got a problem here, can you help? Why aren't they saying that? Because they would if we were willing to be where the suffering is and, I, and, and this, I'm preaching to myself. I've got to stop crossing over to the other side of the road because I do it all the time. I see suffering or I hear of suffering and I just go, well, that's tragic and I'm really busy over here. So I gotta unbizify myself in order to make room in my heart and in my theology for the suffering of other people. I want Michelle LeBeau to come forward uh, this morning. Michelle works with San Diego Rescue Mission And uh, I invited her up here because there's a program that is starting. We're getting the wheels going on it. And there's some people in our church that have done a pilot program of this. And, uh, And I think it's amazing. And it's called Walk With Me. And Michelle, tell them what Walk With Me is all about.
2: Thank you. Uh, Walk With Me is a new outreach initiative of the San Diego Rescue Mission that pairs trained individuals like yourself from the local church uh, to walk alongside a man or woman experiencing homelessness for an extended period of time simply as a friend, not as a counselor, not as a pastor, simply a friend to see them, to lean in, to listen in order to understand their story And then as trust is built over time and you hear their story, you're able to guide them to local resources and begin calling them to a greater story. Um, It's just a beautiful, natural way to um, step into someone's life, someone different from you. Uh, into an uncommon friendship that you wouldn't normally um, have with someone.
1: And tell us about the training that you give and sort of what's expected of a volunteer after that.
2: Yeah, so we spent a whole year developing the training. It's quite comprehensive. It's three and a half hours online, six modules, go at your own pace. And uh, we interviewed experts all over um, San Diego on various topics related to homelessness so that you, as a volunteer, when you step into this, you uh, kind of the fear goes away. You feel a little more comfortable stepping into this uncommon friendship because you learn more about... The trauma that's underlying so many of their hearts. You know, we just feel like this—the heart issue often gets neglected when we're just addressing the needs um, or meeting the needs and not addressing the heart. So, once you go through the training, then we um, bring you to an outreach uh, opportunity, like an, a meal that's or a shower ministry, like we have at the Bread of Life in in Oceanside, and we help you just introduce yourself to some people and and kind of organically find someone that you'd like to come alongside. Um, So yeah, we have about 30 pairs in the pilot program and it's just amazing to see how these friendships are developing. And
1: then you're meeting with that person, What is it once a month? Yeah,
2: you meet once a month for coffee or lunch and then one other time. We're asking it to be two times a month. And
1: why does friendship have such a transformative impact on someone who's homeless?
2: Good question. Well, what we have found and what um, psychologists and sociologists have found that, um, you know, material needs are what you think they lack. You think they just, oh, if they just had housing, oh, if they just had, you know, a job, if they just had this, but what what they're really lacking are healthy relationships. And, um, you know, it's often said and science has proven that the opposite of addiction is connection. And so when we can actually step in and, and see them as God sees them and and understand their story, it's just, it makes all the difference in the world.
1: You're going to be hearing more about Walk With Me um, in the coming months here at this church. But Michelle's going to be out on the piazza at a booth, and you've got a little package there. Yeah. Tell them about that. This
2: is an ICU kit. Not I see, but... I see you, <laughs> um, and it's a kit, uh, a hygiene kit. But it's really special how it's uh, how you hand these out. Um, oftentimes, you'll say, "Oh, here's something. You know, I have this for you," but they don't necessarily want it or need it. You know, so just think about if someone were to just offer you something, and you're like, "Why am I dirty? Do I need a shower?" I mean, so what we do is we have this little instruction sheet in there, and it just helps you understand, like, how do you lean in? How How do you look them in the eye? How do you say, hi, my name's Michelle, what's your name? Um, How are you doing today? Uh, How long have you been out here on the streets? Hear their story. Say, can I pray for you? And then pray for them. And then say, hey, I have this kit and it has toothpaste and shampoo and lotion and pair of socks. Is this something you could use? And then give it to them. And they may say, oh, I just would love the socks, but I don't need everything else. Take the socks out and just give them the socks. What it does is it just makes them feel a little more human. So, yeah, Michelle, come thanks. get one at the table. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. And in case you
1: didn't catch that, the San Diego Rescue Mission now has a North County presence, uh, Bread of Life in Oceanside. Um, is operated by Rescue Mission, so uh, it's an opportunity to help right here without having to drive way downtown. Homelessness is just one instance of suffering that we see around us, even in our immediate area. So I want to close this message this morning by suggesting that uh, there's three ways that we could respond to Jesus' teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the first way would be to say, you know, I'm going to do better. I'm gonna do the better. Next time I see a homeless person, next time I see someone with a flat tire by the side of the road, next time I see someone who is in need, I'm gonna do better and I'm gonna take the time and reach out to that person. And that's good, but Jesus didn't need to die for that to happen. All that needs to happen is a good public service announcement campaign and we all just are more compassionate towards one another. And if Jesus didn't need to die for it to happen, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news. So what would be better than that would be if the church collective, because we've been filled by the love of Jesus, decided to get together and and launch some program like Walk With Me or other programs, and in a programmatic way, we could attack this problem together. That would be better. But the problem with church programs is sometimes it meets on a day or a night that you can't come. Sometimes you're involved for a while and then you just get busy and you back off with your involvement. So that would be better, but what will be best is this, because this is the gospel. That Jesus died so you could be a different person. Jesus died so I could be renewed in my heart and my mind. So that my natural way of looking at the world and other people's suffering isn't what wins at the end of the day, It's Christ in me. And I think it was Dallas Willard who said, A disciple is who you would be if Jesus was living your life. So imagine that. How many of us would say, Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus? Great. A disciple of Jesus is who you would be if Jesus was living your life. And so I think the best response is for you and I to submit to Jesus every day and ask this question, make this request of him Jesus. Make me a big person. Enlar- use my imagination and enlarge my understanding of what could be if I took the Lord's Prayer seriously. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth the same as it is in heaven. My twins are three years old now, uh, just about three and a half, and they clearly understand the benefit of being big versus being little. Because they know that big kids get to do things that little kids don't yet get to do. They know that big people are allowed to do things that we don't let little kids do. My son the other day said, I can't wait until I'm an adult. That came out of his mouth. I said, why is that, Grayson? Because then I can mow the lawn all by myself. I said, yeah, I can't wait for that either. That'll be awesome. You and I need to pray to God, make me a big person, not a little person, because the natural man, the natural woman wants to become little, and Jesus wants to make you big. You can't solve every problem, and you're not expected to, but as the body of Christ, all of us walking arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder, we dare to believe in a world that could be different where suffering and the way that we attend to suffering could operate differently because Jesus is the king. Amen? Amen? Let's pray To Jesus would make us big right now. Lord, this is a convicting parable. It's convicting for those of us like me Who want to just believe we've got the God part all straightened out, religious observance is what it ought to be. But we're turning blind eye to suffering, and and we should be troubled by that. But at the same time as we're troubled, we should be encouraged that you, Lord, are the giver of life and the recreator of life inside of ourselves. I am not destined to just be me. I don't have to throw up my hands and say, well, I'll I'll never change, so the world will never change. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I can change because Jesus was changed from dead to alive. And so the parts in me that might be dead or numb or on its deathbed, like the part of my heart that cares about other people's suffering, you can breathe life into right now and open my eyes to amazing ways that I can make change. I was talking to a woman after the first service, Lord, and she's she's heartbroken that jail ministry became impossible during COVID and, and we still haven't been able to get back in. But that will be another opportunity to go in. And she was telling me how every week she came out so blessed because she thought it was impossible that she could make a difference there. And you were making a difference through her. So we just pray that you'd help us every day fight that impulse to be small small And like a little child, this desire to become big, we all want to be big, big people who can do great things through your power and in your name for your glory. Lord, let it be. As you give us life and you call us to protect life and minister to the lives that are around us, Lord, Enlarge our understanding of what's possible. What what couldn't you do? What is too big for you, God? Nothing is too big for you. That's our faith. So fill us with hope. Fill us with love to the point that we just overflow to the faceless cashier at a restaurant or a grocery store, convenience store, people we see by the side of the street, people we're waiting in line with at Starbucks or wherever we get our coffee. Lord, we want to ooze the love of Christ out of our pores. Make it so, Jesus, as you come and live and reign in our hearts. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.